It's interesting that the first issue that our Lord deals with is his own real identity. And his reply to the disciples of John the Baptist reveals that. For instance, when they came to him and said, Are you the coming one? They are referring to whether or not he is the Messiah. Now that's going to cause some of you, if you're good Bible students, right away to say, Uh-oh, we got a problem here. Why? Because John the Baptist is the one who introduced Jesus as the Messiah and says it was revealed to him that he was the Messiah. Now, how in the world could he be asking the question, are you the Messiah? This is Hope for Today with David Hawking. Today, as we move into verses 18 through 35 of Luke chapter 7, we'll witness a poignant moment where John the Baptist's followers, grappling with uncertainty, turn to Jesus for reassurance. In response, Jesus not only offers solace, but also reveals divine truths through his miracles and teachings, instilling a sense of clarity and understanding in their hearts. However, Jesus goes beyond mere consolation. He challenges them to discern the signs of the times, urging them to move forward with wisdom and heavenly insight. And we'll be in the Word in just a moment. First, though, you know, it's no secret that amidst today's turbulent world events, it's common to feel overwhelmed by the chaos, isn't it? You know something? Don't give up. Instead, download your free copy of a terrific resource we have for you. It's called Hope for the Hopeless. It's a tract that was written with the sole purpose of offering a ray of biblical hope for all who need it. And, of course, that's all of us, isn't it? Download your free copy of Hope for the Hopeless at our brand new website, davidhawking.org. All right, now go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 7. And here's David with day one of No Greater Prophet. Well, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We're at verse 18. And we're reading down to verse 35. Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 18 and reading down to verse 35. On the subject, No Greater Prophet. Now, we just finished looking at a woman who really needed the touch of the Lord Jesus, had a boy who died. She was a widow. It was her only son. And Jesus brought him back from the dead and gave him back to his mother. And, boy, the people were excited. They glorified God. They were afraid, too. And they said that a great prophet has risen up. No doubt thinking of Elijah and Elisha, who both raised children from the dead. And no doubt thinking that he's a prophet like them, and that God has finally visited us, but not believing that Jesus is the Messiah, but thinking that maybe he's the prophet, because you remember a prophet like Elijah of old. Elijah the prophet is to come. And Luke has already told us that one needs to come in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord. So they were thinking maybe Jesus is that prophet. 
And that's fascinating to me because immediately we have this story in Luke 7, 18. Verse 18, then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many people of their infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many who were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously appareled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. Now, there are three groups of people in this particular passage that we've read, and three answers from Christ. Those groups are, one, the disciples of John the Baptist, and that takes you down to verse 23, The second group are the multitudes, which is clear from verse 24, and that takes you down through verse 28. And the third group are Pharisees and lawyers, mentioned in verse 30, and the Lord's answer to them, which goes down to verse 35. So let's take a look at them one at a time. In the first case, our Lord's reply to John's disciples reveals his true identity. The incident that just happened caused the people to say, well, maybe he is a great prophet, perhaps like Elijah and Elisha. And it's interesting that the first issue that our Lord deals with is his own real identity. And his reply to the the disciples of John the Baptist reveals that. For instance, when they came to him and said, are you the coming one? That's stated in verse 19 and repeated again in verse 20 for emphasis. Are you the coming one? 
they are referring to whether or not he is the Messiah. Now that's going to cause some of you, if you're good Bible students, right away to say, uh-oh, we got a problem here. Why? Because John the Baptist is the one who introduced Jesus as the Messiah and says it was revealed to him that he was the Messiah. Now how in the world could he be asking the question, are you the Messiah? More about that in a moment. But the question, are you the coming one, is one which every Jew from the Old Testament would understand. Let me show you what I mean. Turn to Zechariah chapter 9. Again, if for no other reason, simply to find it. Zechariah chapter 9. It's next to the last book of the Old Testament, chapter 9, and look at verse 9. When John said, are you the coming one, or do we look for another one? Zechariah 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He was always described as the coming one. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, according to this prophecy, which was fulfilled when Christ came in that triumphal entry, the Sunday before the week that he was crucified, when he came in, he came in fulfillment of this prophecy. But this is a long time before that. John knows that the king is the coming one. John knows the Messiah is that one we're all looking forward to. And so did every Jewish person. Because if you will turn over to Psalm 118, you will see a passage which Jews know very well called the Hallel, and is given at the Passover. And in Psalm 118, you will find these words in verse 26. Verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now they said that over and over again every year. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord, etc., etc. The coming one is the Messiah. And they knew about this coming one. And John is literally questioning Jesus about whether or not he is that promised coming one. And that seems strange, as we said a moment ago, because John had introduced him as the Messiah to the world. So what is troubling John? Turn back to Luke again, chapter 7. Let's look at it one more time. John, according to the Bible, sent two of his disciples. Now, where was John? Why didn't he come himself? According to Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, a parallel account, it tells us that John is in prison. We know from history it was at the fortress Macarius, which is on the eastern side of the Dead Sea and was built by Herod the Great. You remember John is there because he spoke against Herod. He is there in prison. He's already in prison. According to Matthew 4, the moment John was arrested, Jesus took up his same message. John was preaching everywhere, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, bring forth fruits of repentance. Prove that your heart is right to receive the coming Messiah. The Bible says in Matthew 4, from the moment that Jesus heard that John was in prison, he began to preach the exact same message. He took up the mantle and said, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Interesting. Now John sends two of his disciples from prison and says, Are you the coming one or are we supposed to look for another? 
Why is he so troubled? I'd like you to notice what happens in verse 21, and I think you'll get your answer. In verse 21, almost like this verse is just inserted in here with no purpose at first glance, but it does have a real purpose. It says, and that very hour he cured many people of their infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many who were blind he gave sight. Now, what is Jesus doing here? He is giving evidence to these disciples of John the Baptist who came to ask, Are you the coming one? He's giving evidence to them as to who he really is, by what he is doing. It says that very hour, while they're still there, he cures many people right in front of them and shows what he can do. Many who were blind received their sight, the Bible says. Now, why did he do that? The next verse explains it. His explanation is in verse 22. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now what is Jesus doing here? He is saying, you go back to John and make it clear to him that what I am doing is a fulfillment of prophecy about the coming one. Now, why was John having a question about this? I'd like to show you from turning back to Luke chapter 3. Turn back to Luke chapter 3. John was preaching a message that if the people of Israel will repent and turn to the Lord, then the kingdom of God will come on earth. Who is going to bring in the kingdom and set it up on earth? We know the Bible predicts one will do that. And we know he will judge the Gentile world. He will execute his wrath upon them. Even John indicated that. Look at chapter 3 of Luke reminding yourself of John's original message. In verse 7, he said, Brood of vipers, speaking to the religious leaders, calling them snakes. He obviously had not been trained in PR. But anyway, he said, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You notice that? The wrath of God to come. In verse 9, he says, The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What is John looking forward to? He's looking forward to that culmination when the Messiah comes in power and great glory and establishes kingdom on earth and executes the wrath of God against people. It's exactly what he's saying. Look down at verse 17. He said his winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly purge his threshing floor. He will gather the wheat into his barn, the true believers. But the chaff, the unbelievers, he'll burn with unquenchable fire. Hey, we're reading the messages of John the Baptist. What is he talking about? Flee the wrath of God to come. Now, why is he questioning whether Jesus is the Messiah, when he knows that God revealed to him that he is the Messiah. And I think the answer is very simple. You see, John was disturbed over the fact that up until this point, in Luke chapter 7, everything Jesus did was not an act of judgment, but exactly the opposite. He was doing acts of mercy. And he is now asking, are you the one that is coming, or do we look for another one? 
By the way, in Luke 7, if you'll turn back there, please, there's a very interesting thing. In verse 19 and 20, when he says another, in Greek we have two words for another. One means another of the same kind. Another one means another of a different kind. In Luke's account, he uses the word another of the same kind. Now sometimes these two words for another are interchangeable. For instance, in Matthew's account, he uses another of a different kind. But Luke chooses this, I believe, for a reason. Is is he the one that is coming, or do we look for another of the same kind? You understand that John the Baptist is saying, Jesus, I know what God said about you, but perhaps I don't understand the timing of God. And by the way, he did not understand the timing of God, because as we all know today, there is a tremendous gap of time between the first coming of Christ, in which acts of mercy and salvation were given, and the second coming of Christ, in which acts of judgment will come upon the world. And when the Lord Jesus comes again, which John is thinking about all the time, all during his ministry, everything he preached, deals with the second coming of Christ. He did not see the intervening time of the whole church age. Never saw it. He did not see how God was going to work in this particular period of time. And so in verse 21 of Luke 7, the point would be, Jesus literally in front of their eyes did more acts of mercy. Healed a few more folks, cured a few more. And then he says to them, you go tell John that what I'm doing is what was prophesied in the Bible. You say, well, how do you know that? Thought you would ask. Turn back to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 35. Now the question is, did the Old Testament predict that Jewish Messiah would do these acts of mercy? Isaiah 35. Are you there? Look, please, at verse 5 and 6. The prophet says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. Hey, the prophet predicted it would happen. But some Jewish teachers say, no, that only happens at the second coming. Now, wait a minute, you can't have your cake and ice cream too. They say, wait, acts of mercy and acts of judgment will both be at the second coming of Christ in power and great glory, what they would see as the only coming of Christ. But my friends, we got a problem here. Because all the Old Testament pictures of the second coming have no statements whatsoever about acts of mercy, unless it would be one like this. And how do we explain the fact that there has been somebody in history who fulfilled every last one of these statements? That's why Jesus, in front of John the Baptist's disciples, did it all again. Cured all these people and said, now go back and tell him. And he quotes from Isaiah 35. He quotes from another passage, too. Very important messianic passage. Turn to Isaiah 61. Are you still in Isaiah? Look at chapter 61. Jesus quoted from this one also. People often ask that when Jesus said the dead are raised, does the Old Testament say that the Messiah would raise the dead? I have a couple of answers to that. Number one, in Daniel 12:2, it speaks about the time when Michael, the great prince of Israel, will stand up for his people, Israel, Michael, the archangel, and the dead will be raised. That is at the second coming of Christ in power and great glory, when he comes again. 
But the fact is that the dead will be raised by the Messiah is clearly taught in the Old Testament. The question is, would he do it at his first coming? Interesting, Jesus quoted from Isaiah chapter 61. Here's what it says. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. By the way, he quoted this several times because we know earlier in Luke 4, he quoted it when he was at the synagogue in Nazareth. He refers to again in our passage in Luke 7. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The me in all this passage in Isaiah is the Messiah. Everybody knows that who studied it. Because the Lord has anointed me. The word Christ means anointed one. To do what? To preach good tidings to the poor. Quoted in Luke 7. Now look at the next statement. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Who are the captives? The opening of the prison to those who are bound. Who are they? Well, some people make that allegorical. You are imprisoned in the sense of to sin, and, and he sets you free. But it's interesting that also refers to people who are in the graves. So the resurrection, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, proclaiming liberty to those who are captive by death itself. And he has conquered that. There are many other passages we could connect, but lack of time, we won't do it. Simply to say that Jesus is quoting all of this to the disciples of John the Baptist and says, now you go back and tell him exactly what I told you. Because everything, folks, he was doing was exactly the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. That's David Hawking, rightly dividing the word of truth here on Hope for Today. Well, David will be back in just a moment to close out our time in God's Word, so do stay with us. Just before that, Matt's here to tell us about a terrific and powerful book by David. As debate about Israel heats up around the world, what is this conflict really all about? That's why you need my dad's small but immensely informative booklet, what the Bible says about Israel and its land. This booklet presents indisputable biblical evidence to show us that the Lord himself promised Israel the land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Media outlets may disagree and the world may be against Israel, but the Bible-believing Christians, we have to stand with them. Especially when replacement theology has taken hold in so many churches, and those churches speak out against Israel. The Bible is clear. The land is promised to Israel by the Lord himself. And his promises are forever. What the Bible says about Israel and its land is a great booklet to carry with you or to give to someone you know who is unclear on one of the most important issues in God's Word. What the Bible says about Israel and its land is $5 when you visit davidhawking.org or call us at 1-800-75-BIBLE. That's 1-800-75-24253. In Canada, it's 1-888-75-BIBLE. Well, thank you, Matt. And friend, I want to remind you that today and tomorrow are the last two days we're going to be featuring this very special booklet, What the Bible Says About Israel and Its Land, and it's just $5. Order yours today. And I'm going to give you our contact info again in just a moment. But before that, we'd like to express our sincere gratitude. We're so thankful for all of you who steadfastly remember this ministry on two fronts. First, your prayers. They serve as a source of strength and inspiration and encouragement, guiding our efforts to spread the transformative message of the gospel to the unsaved and to bring the Bible to believers on radio and online. 
Thank you for praying for Hope for Today. Now, second, your financial contributions. They play a vital role in sustaining our mission. By keeping us on the air, your generosity ensures that we continue to reach individuals in need of hope and spiritual guidance that we find in God's Word. As we move forward, may I humbly ask for your continued support of this ministry. Now, if you feel called to support this ministry with prayer or a gift, let us know by writing us at Hope for Today, Box 3927, Tustin, California, 92781. In Canada, at Box 15011, RPO 7 Oaks, Abbotsford, BC, V2S 8P1. You can also get a hold of us on the phone calling 875 Bible. That's 875 24253. In Canada, call 888 75 Bible. And of course, you can always visit our brand new, totally revamped website, davidhawking.org. Well, as promised, here's David to bring today's time to a close. Well, for sure, there's no greater prophet than John the Baptist, and our Lord Jesus makes that clear in our passage that we're studying now. Uh, there's some fabulous uh, quotations also uh, from the Old Testament that our Lord uses to make his point. And uh, we know in John chapter 3 that... Uh, John the Baptist indicated a part of the great qualities and attributes of his life when he said of the Lord, He must increase, but I must decrease. That could be a model for every one of us as believers, that the Lord be glorified and magnified uh, and honored in our life, but that we be humble before him and not give glory to ourselves or boast in our own abilities, talents, or accomplishments. God bless you. Next time, our teacher continues his verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke with day two of our message called, No Greater Prophet. We hope you can join us then, and uh, be sure to invite a friend to listen along with you, right here on Hope for Today. Today.